Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome listeners to the first installment in our Karate Kid movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Karate Kid. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan. And yes, we are doing all five Karate Kid films. I know because of COVID, the release schedule has kind of been up in the air as to what we were going to do. We were initially going to do the Bill and Ted trilogy with the new film coming out. And by the time you're hearing this, Bill and Ted is, I guess, coming out video on demand September 1st. But nevertheless, we are still going to save those reviews for early next year instead. And... We also were going to review Tenant kind of partway through this Karate Kid series. Well, surprise, Tenant has been delayed indefinitely. Right. I remember I sent you the article, uh, Tenant <laughs> yes. delayed indefinitely. And I was like, well, I, I guess this really isn't that big of a surprise, given that practically everything else is being pushed back, at least until next year, it looks like. Uh, so far, though... Denis Villeneuve's Dune is still scheduled to release in December, but uh, at this rate, I have a feeling that's probably not going to happen. We'll see. Hopefully it doesn't change, but again, at this rate, you, you know, who knows? I think that Dune is probably our last hope for a theatrical release in 2020. It's coming out towards the end of December, but nevertheless, I'm not going to hold my breath to see if dune will come out at the end of this year but nevertheless we are going at the end of this year we're going to be reviewing all of denise films leading up to dune now it may very well be the case that we review dune in 2021 early 2021 hopefully but that all remains to be seen so instead of reviewing tenant partway through this karate kid series we are going to be reviewing soldier Never heard of it. Well, neither really had we, but it is kind of considered the lost Blade Runner sidequel. I've never seen a sidequel before, but it is according to it was written by the Blade Runner screenwriter. And this one as well. He wrote this purposely in mind within the world of Blade Runner. And apparently some key events, at least one event, happens within that film, Soldier. It came out in the late 90s, starring Kurt Russell. So I'm actually pretty excited to see this film and how well it does work into the Blade Runner world. Yeah, so am I, because, yeah, a sidequel, that's an interesting an interesting name for something. So I'm curious to see, because, I mean, I think it's no surprise that you and I are very big fans of Blade Runner. I mean, we, we almost mentioned every podcast anyway. So I'm curious to see um, more from the world because I, I didn't even know that Soldier was uh, attached to it. In fact, I didn't even know that Soldier existed until you brought it up to me, uh, I guess, the day of this recording. So, yeah, I'm curious to see what that's all about. It's with um, Paul W.S. Anderson. So I'm, I'm curious to see what it's like. Don't let Paul W.S. Anderson scare you away, listeners. I know he did Resident Evil, Mortal Kombat, and AVP, and those films don't have a lot of love. 
but let's just give him a shot with soldier maybe it'll be just as good as ridley scott's blade runner we don't know <laughs> so nevertheless there's a heads up so go ahead and make sure to brush up on your blade runner films watch the first one watch the sequel make sure to listen to our reviews We'll leave those as a link in the description below so you can access those very easily. Also, we do have the timestamps in the description below. So if you already know the plot of Karate Kid and you just want to jump into our review, then go ahead and check out those timestamps. That'll be easy for you to get straight to the review. Also, it really does help the podcast out if you just leave us a five star rating over on iTunes. That really helps us also be noticed in the charts. It helps other people that love movie reviews and all things cinema to find this podcast a lot easily for Apple to recommend it to them. And then ultimately, it'll help us get verified as actual critics on Rotten Tomatoes. So we uh, really don't need uh, we've met all the other criteria. This is the last one. So. We do need some more five-star reviews from you over there on iTunes. That is just a great way to help us out. It only takes just a minute of your time, and we would definitely appreciate that. So, The Karate Kid, Alan, what's your experience with this movie? Are you a newcomer to it? I guess kind of. Um, I guess what I didn't realize is that there is more than just The Karate Kid from 1984 and the next Karate Kid from 1994, and the Karate Kid from 2010. There's also, I guess, an original trilogy here that That's right. <laughs> I wasn't aware of until we started planning for this retrospective, and I looked it up, and sure enough, there's, uh, there's I guess, a, again, a trilogy, which is news to me. So I came across the Karate Kid. I'd always heard about it. I, I think everyone's always heard the phrase, wax on, wax off. And then, of course, the crane stance that I, I remember doing a lot of time in elementary school. But <laughs> I remember the first time I actually ended up watching it would have been uh, with my now ex-girlfriend a number of years ago. Um, that was the first time I ended up watching it. And I thought it was fairly good, but I don't remember a whole lot from it because I didn't even have it rated on IMDb at the time. or And I didn't have, I didn't have it rated at IMDb when I went to check. So that's my, I guess, my experience with uh, The Karate Kid. I didn't really have too much exposure to it outside of that one time that I watched it. It does seem like we can't get away from the 80s. Yeah. Because the year this Kar the Karate Kid came out, it, it was a summer release. It uh, debuted Friday in the United States. Friday, June 22nd, 1984. And Ghostbusters came out that year. That's right. We've reviewed it. The Terminator just reviewed those films. Mm -hmm. Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. We reviewed that as well. Yep. Um, also A Nightmare on Elm Street. Haven't reviewed that yet. One of the uh, Studio Ghibli films Alan has always wanted to see, Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind came out this year. Yeah. And my roommate has it. So I have, I mean, all I want you to do is, I, I've even told, I've even asked him before, like, hey, could I borrow that from you and watch it sometime? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so sometime I watch it. That's the one, I, that's the one Ghibli film I've always wanted to see. But for whatever reason, it's always escaped me. Oh, I see. Also, Gremlins came out, another big one. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a Steven Spielberg. It's kind of ironic because Dune came out in 84 and the new one's coming out this year, mm -hmm. supposedly. Footloose, The NeverEnding Story, The Last Starfighter. These are just wonderfully kind of just nostalgic 80s movies for me. I just picked up The Last Starfighter on Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. 
Conan the Destroyer and Star Trek Three, which we've also reviewed That's here right. on the channel. That's right. You and uh, you and Brad did. That's right. So best picture that year went to Amadeus, which I do actually have the director's cut on DVD and this wonderful Warner Brothers box set. I haven't watched it yet, though. Yeah, neither, I haven't seen that one. Always also one that I've heard so much about, but have yet to actually sit down and watch it. And it's kind of funny because we did contemplate. Here's a little behind the scenes peek. We did contemplate doing the Rocky films instead of the Karate Kid films. Well, surprise. John G. Alvidson is known for the Rocky movies. That's right. And he also directed these, this trilogy. That's right. Yeah, I didn't realize that uh, he was also attached to uh, all of them, right? All of the Rocky films? I I don't know if it's all of them, but I think most of them. Okay, I know he's attached to at least the first one. Yeah. Um, but I know he, yeah, I, I didn't realize this either until I was looking at getting prepared. And I was like, oh, I guess he's attached to, uh, to Rocky. Uh, interesting. So he did direct Rocky and then he did the Karate Kid trilogy. And then he the, the next year after Karate Kid Part 3, he came back for Rocky 5. Gotcha. And it's also kind of funny because we considered doing the Taken trilogy. Well, that's right. Guess who wrote Taken and the Karate Kid trilogy? Same guy who wrote this? The, the same guy, Robert Ruth. Mark Kamen. Wow. Okay. Um, we also considered the transporter. He also wrote that too. Mm. Nevertheless, Alan, you are a kid in the eighties and you see this trailer on TV. Are you going to be in the theaters? If I were a kid in the eighties, maybe, um, maybe. it seems like an interesting <laughs> oh, trailer about a, <laughs> I, about a little kid who's learning karate. Um, it seems a little bit more original than a lot of other coming of age stories. Um, yeah, especially looking yeah. back on them nowadays. So maybe I, I don't really know. The trailer does kind of give a little bit, a little bit too much away, in my opinion, uh, in mm -hmm. terms of where its story goes. But I don't know. May maybe, maybe I would be interested in going to see it in theater if I were a kid in the eighties. What if you were the age you are now, and you were in the eighties? Would you go see this movie? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. I, I don't think I'd be too interested in a story like this. It seems kind of, I guess, out of my, uh, uh, tar I'm not exactly the target audience at this point. Sure. You know, if I was a kid in the eighties, I would want to see this movie, but otherwise, you know, I'm 25 right now. And I was, if I was 25 in 84, I would pass on this movie and not look back. Mm -hmm. Uh, nothing about this movie to really catch my eye. And yeah, the trailer does kind of give too much away. It's a really odd trailer, I thought, um, especially because they show the whole crane kick thing, kind yeah. of, which is a pretty big moment in the movie. And I really wish they would have kept that hidden from the trailer. Otherwise, I have seen this movie a couple times throughout my lifetime. It's one I never remember, though. Uh, the last time I did see it, thanks to the Magic of Letterboxd, was April 15th, 2018. So uh, a little over two years ago. And with that watching, I gave it a 7 out of 10. Oh, man. Yeah. And otherwise, I have not seen any of the other Karate Kid films in their entirety. I've seen bits and pieces of the next Karate Kid uh, on TV. But otherwise, that's it. Well, as for its audience reception and critical reception, Letterboxd has this one as a 3.6, which is, you know, pretty good. 
considering that's the same rating as I think the born born identity maybe or supremacy something like that. I think so. Yeah. Uh, IMDb has it at a I would say a, a pretty solid seven point two. I guess a little bit lower than I was expecting, given how much I've heard about this film, but it's still a respectable score. Yeah, this is considered a classic of the 80s. And mm-hmm. if you haven't heard Wax On, Wax Off, I don't know where you've been. Yeah. But it does have a pretty high certified 88% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, man. Yeah. That's really a, high. It is with an audience score of 82%. Um, Metascore tells a different story with a 60, mm-hmm. which is means it's generally mixed reviews. That is right on the cusp of generally positive reviews, though. Yeah, yeah. so it sounds like it's a somewhat mixed bag um, with the Karate Kid because Metacritic or Metascore has it at a 60%, uh, a score of 60, which is right on the cusp. But then you, on the other hand, you've got Rotten Tomatoes, which has it at an 88%. Uh, now, I guess it's good. Uh, it would be a good time to note that Rotten Tomatoes does can very easily have a bias towards certain movies. I, I think that might be the case here um, where it's a bit more biased because it is very much a treasure of the 80s. Um, that's why its score is a lot higher than maybe Metascore is my guess. But of course, even the IMDb score, I feel, is a bit lower compared to the Letterboxd score. So I don't know. It's kind of a mixed bag. Don't forget, The Terminator, which also came out this year, has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's also correct, yes. <laughs> um, I was pretty shocked that this film didn't get a cinema score. All the rest of the films did, except for this one. Hmm. I don't know why, but it could be because this movie wasn't very popular when it came out, box office-wise, at least. Really? Yeah, so it had a budget of $8 million. Okay, okay, that's perfectly reasonable. Well, opening weekend, it grossed $5 million, and it opened at number five at the box office. Ooh, okay. So what possibly could have pushed Karate Kid down to number five? What else opened this weekend in 84, in the summer? Well, none other than Rhinestone. Have you ever heard of Rhinestone? I haven't. It's, the name sounds familiar, but I don't know. It looks truly awful, but I can't wait to see it. It is a team-up film between Sylvester Stallone okay. and Dolly Parton. Ah, okay. I think I have heard of this. So, yeah, Rhinestone beat this out by about $500,000 or so. Mm-hmm. So, what was the top five? This should be no shock. Ghostbusters was number one. Ah, okay. It had been out for three weeks, but it was holding strong. Gremlins was number two. It had also been out for three weeks. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom had been out for five weeks, and it was number three Got at the you. box office. Okay, so it went up against a few powerhouses then. Yeah, it did. Um, the other opening films was Top Secret, exclamation mark, and The Pope of Greenwich Village. Okay. Um, they That came in at number nine, so it did pretty bad. But The Karate Kid... Actually sunk to number seven in its second week. Um, it was pushed down by Cannonball Run 2 and Conan the Destroyer and Bachelor Party starring Tom Hanks. Okay. Um, but in its third week, it actually jumped up to number four. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it jumped up to number four. It leapfrogged over 
Rhinestone, Star Trek 3, Conan the Destroyer, Indiana Jones, and Bachelor Party. So my guess is by this point, word caught on that this was a really fun family film. Yeah, maybe. Um, do do we know what placement it got in after those three weeks? Um, yeah, it's, in its fourth week, it stayed at number four. Okay. In its fifth week, it was at number five. Five sixth week, five seventh week, gotcha. five eighth week. And then um, over Labor Day weekend, it actually jumped back up to number four for uh, three weeks. Um, so this movie's kind of been all over the place with its placement in the box office and popularity. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And that's unusual, I would say. That is a bit unusual. Yeah, definitely. It, the, domestically, it opened in 931 theaters with its widest release of 1,111 for a domestic gross of 91 million dollars on an eight million dollar budget i guess that's considered a hit i mean <laughs> oh, i don't know yeah. how many theaters there were to be in back in the 80s but a thousand seems uh, maybe about right um probably either way yeah that's that's definitely a hit uh 90 10 times the budget that's that's a good profit i couldn't find anything in the foreign market so yeah the worldwide gross according to box office mojo was Around $91 million, but yeah, it was a huge gross, even though it had a pretty rough, weird history at the box office. Never was number one, never mm -hmm. made it in the top three, but it did actually, believe it or not, have a presence at the Academy Awards. I did see this. Yeah, it got, um, it got a nomination for Best Actor, right? Uh, Best Supporting Actor, I believe. That's Pat, Pat Morita, who is right. Mr. Miyagi, was nominated for... Supporting actor, and that's pretty big, and that's a major category. Yeah, that is a pretty big category. Uh, I know that, of course, along with Wax on Wax Off, his character just in general has become a very big staple, kind of just in Hollywood culture in general. It really has, and I would say this performance has really outshined um, and outstayed the other actors that went up against him. Uh, Hang S. Nior, I probably said that really wrong, for the killing fields uh he won that year i've never seen the killing fields uh, i'm sure i will someday but yeah he he won instead of pat morita gotcha well listeners if you have not seen the karate kid and you don't want the film spoiled for you go ahead and click pause right now as of right now the karate kid is free on imdb tv and also on netflix that's not free though and as of this recording all three Karate Kid films are on Netflix and the next Karate Kid is available for free on IMDb TV. So there's very accessible for you to watch, especially this first film. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Come back and click play on the podcast. We'll be ready to talk about it. Young high schooler Daniel LaRusso, played by Ralph Macchio, and Mother Lucille, played by Randy Heller, move across country in September from Newark, New Jersey to the Valley in California. So Lucille can have a better job and create a better life for her and her son. Daniel makes fast friends with the kids in his apartment complex. They invite him to a beach party where he meets Allie, played by Elizabeth Shue, who would be in Back to the Future Part 2, briefly. That's right. The two hit it off but are thwarted by Allie's ex-boyfriend, Johnny, played by William Zabka. Johnny is the leader of his peers who all study martial arts under the tutelage of the ruthless Crease, played by Martin Cove the master of the Cobra Kai. And if you haven't heard of Cobra Kai, I don't know where you've been. <laughs> uh, 
Daniel and Johnny's gang continue to have fights until one night during the school dance, Daniel is saved by their building maintenance man, Mr. Miyagi, played by Pat Morita. Miyagi and Daniel had been striking up a friendship, but now their father-son bond is cemented through martial arts. The following day, Miyagi strikes a deal with Kreese. Johnny and his goons lay off Daniel until the big martial arts tournament that December. For the next hour of the film, Daniel learns to wax on and wax off, how to paint fences, and his relationship with Allie goes up and down as he struggles with feelings of inferiority thanks to her snooty parents, jealousy, thanks to Johnny trying to weasel back into Allie's life to get her back and to mess with Daniel. But finally, on Daniel's birthday, he gets his driver's license, he gets a classic car from Miyagi, and he ultimately gets the girl. Now that the big tournament has come, Daniel squares off against the Cobra Kai. Kreese, not wanting to lose, commands his students to fight dirty in order to decommission Daniel. With his leg seriously injured, it appears Johnny will be the default winner. That is until Daniel pushes through the pain and in a daring final move, Crane kicks Johnny, thereby making Daniel the winner of the tournament as credits roll. So I have to ask, uh, Corbett, I'm just curious. Um, maybe I missed a line or something like that. But did they ever say why they are moving across the country? Because they're coming from New Jersey, right? Correct. They move from New Jersey, right. from coast to coast, New Jersey to California. Yeah. Did they ever say like why they're moving across the coast? I'm, I'm just curious. I, I, I don't think, remember a line, but I think we're supposed to be under the impression that his mom is going to have a better job out there okay. and a better life. So I'm pretty sure it's because of her work. There's that scene where they are eating at the mom's, the restaurant she's working at. Yeah. And you can see the Cobra Kai scheming in the background. And she says she's going to be taking night classes or some kind of classes for something or other. Um, well, Alan, now that you bring up the mom, the way her character is handled in this film is interesting because she's pretty influential on Daniel until Miyagi takes over. And then the mom utterly disappears until the final tournament. And she's really relegated to the background in that as well. Yeah, you're right. She definitely has an influence. But then once the once the movie starts focusing more on uh, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel's relationship, she's just kind of disappeared. Um, I think she shows up once in a while. And then, of course, at the very end. But yeah, you're right. It's an interesting choice, and I know why they did that, because they're, Mr. Miyagi is becoming more of a father figure for Daniel, right? Um, along with a friend and along with a teacher. He's, a mini, he's many things to Daniel, so showing more of that side of the story and, how, and where it's going, I can see why they did it. But you are right, it's an interesting choice where the mom is just kind of pushed the background, which makes me wonder, you know, why this kind of brings me back to my question as to why they like, this just kind of seems like a sudden decision to move across the country. Um, I wonder if, cause they don't ever really explain it. I mean, from what I remember, it, it sounds maybe there was some kind of uh, a divorce. Maybe there was no father. I, I don't really know what was going on here, but it, it's, they kind of leave it up in the air as to their reasons to why they're moving across the country for mom to find out a better job. Maybe it is just that she just wants to find another job, but it is an interesting choice that once things get rolling, it's pretty much primarily Daniel and Mr. Miyagi in their relationship. We do learn about Daniel's father in part two, but you're right from this opening. I think she's just a single mom trying to make her way in the world. And this is definitely a trope of kind of coming of age films is mm -hmm. always a big move. 
And I think that's because that's relatable to most people. I know when I was young, I moved across a number of states. Um, so, and then we eventually came back to the same state, which we had left. But nevertheless, you do see that in a lot of movies where the kids don't want to move. It's just about changing life and being kind of a stranger in a strange world and you're a fish out of water. So this is probably a good setup, I would say, to have Daniel go from New Jersey to the Valley in California, which apparently is very different for him. Right. Yeah. And it is interesting that they're given that it is a coming of age film um, and this character of Daniel is being put into a situation that he doesn't really want to be in, but he has he's forced to have to get along with those around him. It is going to reel in um, that those a crowd of younger of younger, mostly younger boys, oh, um, especially around the ages of probably 15 or younger or younger um, yeah. because. Yeah, it's something that it kind of happens to a lot of people. I never really had to move across and go to like a different school or anything. Um, I pretty much stayed exactly where I was at my entire life. We did move once, but it didn't wasn't big enough for us to for me to change schools. So, um, not that I don't. Ha- it's not like I have like a hard time relating to Daniel. It's more of I never really had this experience when I was a kid. But I can see where the I I can see where. Uh, the hook is with the story. It's a new kid moving to a new place. And I think this, that's one of my favorite aspects about this film is how relatable the teenage experience is in many ways, even though I am, you know, a number of years removed from Daniel and especially his age here. Mm. Um, Nevertheless, this, it's not just about growing up and facing bullies, kind of like overcoming your fears necessarily, but it's also about, kind of going through those experiences of finding love. And I think some of the scenes with Daniel and Allie are very sweet and enduring. And uh, I think it was played very well between those two characters. Yeah, I agree. They do have an interesting relationship. Um, I don't think that they necessarily pry on it too far. Um, And that's kind of, I guess, the deal for a lot of things in this movie. There are a lot of things that are kind of left open-ended, mostly for the audience to kind of fill in with their own experiences. Um, Sure. That does kind of get into a little bit of of a criticism, which we'll talk about maybe a little bit later. But either way, yeah, there are a lot of elements here that are, even though you're still within the same country, you're moving to a completely new place. It, there's a lot of things here that um, are like opening the door for somebody around Daniel's age or around Daniel's depicted age um, because he's like 20 when this movie was made to yeah. <laughs> kind of relate to what the situ- what situation he's in. But then also have that more fantasy aspect of when he finally meets Mr. Miyagi and he starts learning karate, you know, actually getting good at something like that. Um, that's more the fantasy aspect of the story. So I can see where they're going with this. Um, a bit too open-ended for my taste, but I can I can see where they're going with it here in, this, here in this opening, at least. Yeah, and I think one of the best scenes depicting that, especially within the first act of the film, is when Daniel comes after he is pushed down the hill on his bike and he comes home crying, mm-hmm. throws his bike in the trash, he's kicking the trash, he's saying stupid bike, he doesn't understand the rules of this place. I thought that was a very authentic display of emotion I mean, maybe for his age range, because I don't, isn't he supposed to be like almost a senior in high school or 11th grader or something like that? I, I found it more of uh, maybe 
freshman in high school um, around that age. You see, I thought that too, but we know Karate Kid Part 2 takes place six months later and he is graduating from high school. So (laughs) maybe they sit it. I forget if they sit it or not. Again, this is kind of open-ended for you to kind of fill in with your own experiences, I think. Sure. Yeah. It's nothing. I mean, everybody, I would say matures at a different phase in life anyway, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, I think that's a good thing in the first act to kind of display this emotion of kind of taking out your anger on some kind of object, inanimate object. And, um, just kind of having a crying fit and kind of crying to your parents. And then I really love how it comes around to Daniel is kind of becoming a man. He's got his driver's license. He gets his car. He doesn't need his bike anymore. And uh, he's kind of fitting in a little bit more that way with growing up. So there's, there are some pretty nice, uh, I would say elements that way that are, that do feel authentic and relatable. Okay. So I guess we can talk about Mr. Miyagi. Probably sure. the most popular uh, element to these movies is the character of Mr. Miyagi, who's like, you know, the nicest man you've ever seen in your entire <laughs> life. Um, because he gives Daniel so much. He gives him, well, it first starts off with him, of course, doing his job, which is fixing the sink, I believe. Um, right. The sink and then the bike. And then the bike. And then he gives him a bonsai tree. Mm-hmm. And then he teaches him karate or starts teaching him karate and gives him. He teaches uh, him discipline. That's right. Uh, discipline. And then he gives him a car. <laughs> so yeah, he's Mr. Miyagi is like the nicest man you've ever met. Um, but he's also in some ways kind of an enigma because he fits more of, he fits into more of an ideal when I, I feel like when I sit back and think about it some more. Because he teaches Daniel a lot about how, you know, just because, you know, Daniel's the one who comes to him. I want to, he's like, I want to learn karate, but he stops him. He's like, yeah, you don't learn karate to fight. You learn it to defend. It's not something that you use to up somebody. It's something that you use to learn, to learn respect. And I think that's something I find to be interesting because there are a lot of movies where it's like more of a, re- a revenge story where a person builds himself up to get revenge but in this one, it's not this. It's not the case. They're not. He's not wanting. The story ends up not being about revenge. It ends up, ends up being about respect. Yeah, it's about respect, and it's also about not giving up and not really backing down, even though the cards seem to be stacked against you, and you have all this other stuff going on. That's the overcoming aspect of the film, which clearly John. Alvidson does so well since his film Rocky won Best Picture of the Year. Right. And I I don't know if you've seen, have you seen Rocky, Alan? I have not seen Rocky yet. Okay. So once we do watch Rocky and review those movies, this is very much Rocky for kids. It's it's unmistakable how similar these movies are. Yeah. I, I, I've seen enough of Rocky but I that I picked up on some elements here. Um, but I guess, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's Rocky for kids. And, you know, that's something I really do love about this movie is that kids can watch this movie and depending upon their age, they'll get something different out of it, uh, whether that is those kind of basic lessons of kind of like doing seemingly hard chores, but they pay off in the long run, even though you don't see it at first or kind of overcoming insecurities with kind of budding romances. And then, of course, kind of. Uh, facing down your bullies, not in a vengeful way at all, 
but in a way that has to do with, you know, self-respect and whatnot. So I think those are some great worldviews and lessons that it does teach kids. And I'm hoping that the coming films will continue on with that as well. Mm -hmm. But as for Miyagi being an enigma, you're right. He is that. But one of the scenes that I wasn't sure if I necessarily ever liked, but now I think I kind of like it, is the scene where he gets drunk. Ah, yes. Yeah. And I think that really does depict his humanity and that he is a person with pain in the past. And he, even though he's teaching Daniel to overcome his current pain, Miyagi still is a flawed human being that still has a hard time with what he's gone through. Yeah, that's it's an interesting scene because it comes right after, oh, what does it come after? It comes right after, I think, when Daniel is trying to get back with Allie because he assumed that she wasn't happy with him because he didn't have as prestigious of a life that she did. Yeah, and that wasn't right. the case. And so then he, after that scene of them kind of making back up, he goes and visits Mr. Miyagi and he's completely drunk out of his mind. And that's when he finds <laughs> out that uh, he was in the he was in the military for Okinawa. He uh, had a wife at one point and his wife died, I think, in childbirth. And then the, his child also died. So he's been through a lot, even though he is more of an enigma. He's still a character. He's been through a lot of he's been through a lot in his life getting to this point. And now he's a maintenance man for um, what looks like a almost like a hotel or an, slash apartment place. Right. So it's an interesting it's an interesting scene to have. I, I don't know if it necessarily fits with everything else the film is going for, but nevertheless, uh, it is there to humanize his character. Um, even though he is very much an enigma for uh, pretty much their entire movie up until this point. In some ways, I always thought that fell out of character for Mr. Miyagi, but I think it's probably necessary because Daniel seemed to either idealize or idolize Miyagi as just this really incredible wise old man who seems to just be able to do anything and doesn't really let anything bother him or get in his way. But then seeing that Miyagi is this human being too with um, a painful past as well allows Daniel and I think allows kids as well to there's always that moment where you realize like your parents aren't perfect mm -hmm. or grandparents or somebody that you looked up into your life. There is that kind of moment where you realize that they don't have it all together as well. So I do like that scene in that character um, trait and for that as well. Right. And it's also interesting too, because as Daniel looks up to Mr. Miyagi as his father figure, well, Miyagi also looks at Daniel as like the son that he never really had. Right. Right. It's he he sees Daniel as the son that he lost so many years ago. But now he's able to teach his um, adoptive son in some ways, I guess you could put it. Uh, he's able to teach him something that he never really, I guess, would have been able to do because, again, his previous son um, ended up dying in childbirth. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you do have that emotional connection between these two where they're kind of they're drawn to each other because uh, one's a father figure and one's, um, I guess, a, a, a child or a, uh, a son figure. So, yeah, you do have these two characters who are almost naturally drawn to each other. And then when they start teaching karate, you get to learn, of course, um, the discipline actions of the disciplinary actions of learning skills, but then also, you know, learning to correctly use those skills. It's very much a father son movie. 
Oh, yeah. It is absolutely a father-son movie. And, you know, there's also we depictions of kids trying to relate to their parents. Um, Allie's parents have no idea what's going on in her life. Mm-hmm. And they act like they have the best for her at heart. That's what they seem to say. But nevertheless, they don't really care. They're pretty snotty. And um, so the film does a good job, I would say, of kind of giving different dimensions to parent-child relationships. Speaking of dimensions, though, I would say outside of Daniel and Miyagi, mostly all of these characters are just kind of have one-dimensional motives, it seems like. Yeah, I, I agree, and especially with our villains. Uh, this is very much a movie centered around the relationship between Mr. Miyagi and Daniel LaRusso. Outside of that, things get kind of cardboardy. There aren't, <laughs> there isn't a whole lot of dimension to these side characters outside of our main two, unfortunately. And I'd say that the, probably the worst offender is our villain. Um, there is some elements to his character, but there Which really one? isn't a lot. He's very over the top. Johnny or Crease or both? Uh, I both actually, I guess. But yeah. mo- I'm mostly referring to Crease. But Crease and Johnny uh, are pretty similar. Um, with their beliefs because they are very much mm-hmm. a reflection. Uh, I, they're a mirrored image of our two main leads. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. They are a mirrored image, but in kind of a opposite way. They're the anti-people because their relationship mm-hmm. is all very cold. There's really no warmth or emotion whatsoever. It's all just about uh, kind of like being the best and trampling on other people at any cost. Right. Um, yeah. So as for the Cobra Kai's, I feel like there are too many run-ins in this movie yeah. between Daniel and especially before the truce where they have to lay off him before the big tournament. It's like almost every scene is just him being harassed perpetually and in increasingly violent ways um, until we do get that pretty fun fight where Miyagi just kind of jumps down and takes out the skeletons. Yeah. I've always remembered that scene. I That's a pretty fun, memorable scene for me. Yeah. Okay. I do have to ask though, because there is the truce that's made about what, about halfway ish through the film. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I, what's stopping Johnny from just, you know, ambushing Daniel. I feel like it's an, in, it's a weird choice for crease who, once the tournament comes is totally okay with being very sleazy about how he <laughs> tries to win it by <laughs> deliberately hurting Daniel's leg. Um, I'm just, I'm wondering why he's, uh, you know, respecting this truce that he's made with Mr. Miyagi. Um, it just seems like, I don't know. It just seems kind of honestly a little bit out of character for him, especially with what he does later um, to, to respect this truce that's been made. So you're right in some aspects, but the first act is all about Johnny and Daniel being physically combative with each other, mm-hmm. whereas the second act revolves around emotional, uh, I don't even know how you want to phrase it. He's mostly psychologically messing with Daniel through Allie because he knows that Daniel and Allie clearly have a crush on each other and He's a total jerk to Allie all the time, but nevertheless, he sees Daniel looking in at them at right. the dance or whatever that fundraiser thing was, and he starts kissing her. Allie, go girl. She is slapping him. Yeah. She is really beating on that uh, guy as he deserves it. But so in some ways, he does like 
honor the truce insofar as he doesn't touch Daniel, but he does mess with his head quite a bit. I guess I would, my point is, uh, given how sleazy these characters are, it seems kind of weird that they would go ahead and just honor the truce anyways. Um, yeah, you're right. It isn't, doesn't really hold up very well, mm-hmm. but I think it does make it more impactful when Kreese tells the Cobra Kai to fight dirty. Yeah. Um, because you think, oh man, he's really bad, but you didn't know he was this bad. And also I honestly kind of need a break from some of them Mm -hmm. because it's so heavily populated within the first act Mm -hmm. that I'm glad we do get to just focus on Miyagi and Daniel and Daniel's romance, his insecure romance throughout the second act. And I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this just yet or not, but I feel like the plot structure and pacing is really whack in this movie. Yeah, you know what? Let's this, this talk about that because I am with okay. you. <laughs> I noticed this the first time that I watched it. I was like, this is kind of a slow-moving movie. This is slower than I was anticipating it to be. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's So it, this movie is weird because I put in my notes the first 20 minutes – the plot moves super fast and so much happens with mm-hmm. the new move, all these new characters introduced. I, I mean, so much happens in the first 20 minutes. And then usually films with a three act structure, it's pretty obvious like what those, when those acts end and begin because major events, events occur. And then you spend the next act dealing with those events. But this movie's confusing because act one is like 20 minutes long. And then act two is, this very, very long um, training sequence. Um, the tournament is brought up 50 minutes into the movie, but it doesn't start till the last 20 minutes. And Daniel's fight with Johnny starts within the last seven minutes of the movie. Two minutes are credits, so it's the last five minutes, technically. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it's it's just an oddly structured movie, uh, I feel, all the way around. I guess I don't have necessarily a huge pacing problem. I think my biggest problem... I do. ...is... Um, I don't mind a slow movie. Right? This is a pretty slow movie. I, I didn't really feel the disjointed pacing as much as you did. I felt it, but not nearly, I guess, as as bad as you did. I think my problem is this movie isn't exactly the, the deepest thing in the world. And I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. It's These characters are very, uh, they're kind of hollow and they're meant to be that way. They're They're meant to be something that you project your own experiences onto. But I feel like it's to a point um, where it's not enough to define these characters. Um, Maybe Daniel, maybe Mr. Miyagi. um, But once you get outside of those two, that's really about it. And even Daniel, I think, is a little bit too too hollow for my taste because uh, I, I feel like there's just not enough there to really relate to Daniel. Although he is relatable, there's I feel like there could have been more there to really identify his character with and so when it gets to these slower moments especially in that second half when he's trying to learn karate but ends up having to paint the fence or sand the deck it's like can we just kind of move on can we go a bit faster with this plot because there isn't enough thematical depth here to explore some of these ideas that it brings up it's very much a character-driven story um which is fine except that these characters again are a little bit hollow so that is something that i found especially in the second half like come on we just can we get moving a bit faster here i i actually did doze oh yeah (laughs) within this section i had to go back and rewatch the middle of this movie but nevertheless you're right um it i found it to be i found it to be far too slow within the middle of the film and i did go back and look at some 
reviews around the time when this movie came out. And that was kind of the main criticism was this movie really did need to be edited down better. Mm -hmm. This movie does not need to be two hours and six minutes long. Yeah, yeah, I, that's a good point. It probably will be okay 145, maybe even 130. I guess my intentions or beliefs about what this movie was going to be about were wrong from the outset because I really thought this was going to be about the big confrontation between them. I didn't need to have almost an hour of the movie consist of Daniel and learning from Miyagi and then having some, you know, the romance with Ali I enjoyed, but nevertheless, it's just too clunky for me and far too slow for me, especially because I feel like we get all that we need. These characters aren't deep, but they're stretching it so thin that once uh, the, like I said, the tournament starts within the last, 20 minutes of the movie yeah and then this movie has like the most abrupt ending ever he oh crane my kicks johnny cut to freeze frame miyagi and you're done that's kind of one of the biggest thing that one of the biggest things that bothers me is especially in the second half it's really building up this tournament to be it's when daniel's going to gain the respect of those who have bullied him right right that's what it's building up to and when it finally gets down to it, it's said in one line, and that's from Johnny himself. He goes, uh, something along the lines of, good fight, you're okay, kid. And gives Yeah, he says, you're him, okay, LaRusso. Yeah, he says, yeah, that's what, exactly what he says. And he hands him the trophy. Um, yeah. That's it. What? And <laughs> literally five seconds after that, you cut to Mr. Miyagi smiling, freeze frame, and the credits are rolling. That's a extremely abrupt ending for a movie that's kind of building up to, you know, uh, this character of Daniel learning to not get revenge, rather gain the respect of those who have hurt him. It seems just just a complete dead stop once we get once the tournament ends. That that that's it. That I've, I've always had an issue with this ending. I remember having an issue with it when I watched it before, and I still have an issue with it now. Well, and that's because they paced the movie all wrong, and they didn't leave. They they realized that they're already running over two hours, and they've probably lost. <laughs> a proportion of the audience already because this is, I'm like I said, it's so frustrating because they don't bring the tournament up till 50 minutes in, mm -hmm. which is kind of a weird transition section anyway for a two hour movie, because I would say the tournament is kind of where act one ends for me. And then, like I said, it's another hour or so. And then um, the, the tournament is very short at the end. And so they realize they don't have enough time to have any sort of resolution. Spoiler alert, the beginning of Karate Kid 2 does try to give us more resolution that we didn't get in this. Right. And, um, the credits go, the credits are super short as well. So once again, you're right, Alan, this just comes down to my pacing issues. If this would have been an, an hour and a half, a 90 minute movie, the tournament could have been... Uh, talked about at the 30 minute mark, 30 minutes of training and romance. And then for the last 30 ish minutes, taking out time for credit of credits, of course, then we really could have got to enjoy more time with the multiple fights and respect and kind of gone a little bit more into that. Now, maybe that'd be a little too long, actually, for the tournament as well. But it's already 20 minutes as is, so an extra 10 minutes, I think, probably could have helped it. Right. And I, now I do kind of want to go back to Crease again, um, and partially Johnny, because I, I mentioned this earlier 
uh, a couple of times where I feel like just in general, the characters feel hollow. Uh, these are two good examples. They feel like just your generic villains. They're the complete opposite of Mr. Miyagi where they fight for, they fight to win, not necessarily to win the, res win the respect, but just to overpower those who they're up against. Um, Crease is very over the top um, to a point where it kind of bars away from realism, which I can kind of get with given, you know, what this movie, who the target audience is for this movie. But I think what my issue is, is because we don't have as much depth with these, the antagonists of the story, I think that severely hurts challenging our main two leads um, with their beliefs, because it feels like Daniel is learning from Miyagi, but Miyagi doesn't really learn a whole lot through the story, I don't think. I mean, he learns to find a son, but you know it's yeah it's not really anything that's hammered on too hard anyways Daniel's our main character here but i feel like the change he goes through is through mr miyagi not necessarily not necessarily solely because of the villains that are of the story which is fine but it, it i feel like it maybe would have been nice to also challenge miyagi while challenging daniel as well and i do agree that that's the case it's it, it's kind of hard because I have already seen the second movie, so I know that that is going to be more so Mr. Miyagi's movie than this one is. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think what could have made these points stronger and the second act more engaging, I, I don't think they give us enough time with Crease and Johnny. I think Johnny's has plenty of time in the first act, but when Crease does say a sweep the leg and he's just really kind of Teach, being really terrible to these kids here in the end of the film, I think I would have liked to have seen Crease and Crease um, and training Johnny and teaching him all the wrong things and kind of had like you you brought it up as a mirror before and mirrored that with Miyagi's different style of training and teaching him the right things. I think that could have been fascinating because after the tournament talk, I'm pretty sure Crease disappears until the very end of the movie. Yeah. And uh, would I be wrong in saying that he's a cartoon? Oh, 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 yeah. He's an absolute cartoon. <laughs> I, keep in mind, Alan, this is the 80s. G.I. Joe was on TV. This was the golden age of 80s cartoons. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm not hammering on this movie too much for having super cartoony villains because, again, the target <laughs> audience is more high school, middle school age. Um, and it is also from the 80s. So, that part, I understand why it's here, but you're very correct. It, it is very much a cartoon. And I, I really just think they didn't just balance these characters and movies very well at all. It's just kind of this really weird lopsided teeter-totter of who we're spending time with. And, okay, now we're going to transition to the second act, 43 minutes into the film, and it's going to be like the longest second act ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just really strange how they did that as well. But one other thing that I'm just disappointed with is the score of this movie isn't good, even for an 80s movie. Yeah, I listened to it outside of the movie. Cause the, during the movie, I was like, this doesn't sound <laughs> like this is an interesting score. But then when I listened to it outside, I was like, yeah, because sometimes scores for movies sound different within the movie than they do without without the con or inside the movie while you're watching it and then yes. outside of it, they can sound very, very different. This is, is one true. of those where I, I didn't really see too much of a difference and I wasn't too big of a fan of it to begin with. But yeah, so yeah, you're right. Not a very big fan of the score here. 
one more thing um, that, and this has to do with the relationship with Ali. Um, this is something that I don't feel is, it feels very out of place for what the rest of this movie is going for. Um, because the character of Johnny never really has a love interest, although he does pursue Ali. Um, yeah. I guess my point with it is it, the scenes with Ali and Daniel feel a little bit out of place. Maybe that's due to the pacing. I don't know. My point is, I, along with a lot of things in this movie that are rather surface level, this is one of those where I really couldn't get into the way that their relationship was. They had good chemistry, but them developing their relationship, I felt was, again, so shallow to a point where I'm just like, eh, I don't really care for these scenes that they're in. Like, they have good chemistry, but that's not enough to, for me to keep engaged with the, with what's going on with their side of this, with their subplot. I actually liked the scenes that they were in. I really connected with this very sweet budding romance that felt very innocent. And it just, especially because a lot of, I feel like romances we see today portrayed are usually very toxic and not innocent whatsoever, especially between teenagers. Uh, it's usually all about sex. And this wasn't, didn't have anything to do with that. So I really appreciated that. That felt refreshing. I guess in the only way I'll agree with you is I think this movie kind of struggles to keep focus and balance between all of its different kind of subplots or which are kind of just combined to create one big whole plot. Yeah. Um, you're right. There's a lot to balance, but maybe they're trying to depict that teenage experience of maybe I'm reading into it too much. I don't know. Yeah. But. I mean, there is a line from Mr. Miyagi about balance and it, it does actually involve uh, with it does involve Ali as well, but you are right. It isn't exactly, this isn't exactly the most balanced movie. No. And you know, honestly, as I was watching this movie, I was, I'm like, clearly this is a movie made for kids and families, but you know what? If I was a kid, I probably, this is why I never really grew up on it. I don't know if this would hold a kid's interest very well. Cause it is too long and it's got just a little bit too much going on and it takes its sweet time about everything. I don't know. How do you feel? I mean, I, I do agree. It's, I don't know. It is a bit too slow with not enough intrigue. Um, for kids. For kids, yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe um, there are some people out there who, this really, they really jive with this one. I'm sure there are because it's very popular. Um, but I think that, I guess my problem is, it's just too shallow for, I guess, for me to consider it good. It's too shallow for me to, there. there's enough uniqueness here to make it, I guess, stand out, but not enough for me to really like say, oh yeah, this is a great cinematic achievement. It's a, it's a great Hollywood picture. I feel like there's just not enough here meat wise for me to say that. And I feel like eighties movies in general, especially targeted towards teens or young adults were just shallow in general. I mean, I just rewatched the eighties foot loose and that movie is incredibly shallow. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, I didn't really like it very much. <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm just saying that I think that is just kind of a thing of the 80s, even though there are some 80s movies that I think maybe this is us just waxing nostalgic for a time we'll never have. But there are some 80s films that are really incredible. And I really love just their characters and what it has to say about the teenage experience. And I think this movie kind of carves its own place if, as far as that goes. 
But trying to balance between being a karate movie and a coming of age movie in multiple ways, it's just, it really struggles to keep any kind of tight focus. And maybe if they would have trimmed some things down, maybe if they would have been a little smarter in the editing bay, we would feel differently. Do you think that this is too much of a product of its time where time really hasn't served it very well after being out for so long? Because I, I think that seems to be the case where it's a movie that at the time maybe had, had a big appeal to a lot of people, but now not so much. And I think you're right as well. I think this movie is a little bit too meandering and maybe that's due to it being done in the 80s where you have to have really cheesy montages and whatnot. I love some of those just for, like I said, the nostalgic purpose of it. But this one just really doesn't capture me in that way. And I know the people that do love this movie were the ones that grew up in the 80s and grew up on it. And they still just adore this movie today as one of the classics. Yeah. Clearly, we didn't grow up on it. And clearly, I don't feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, Alan, I am pretty curious what your rating and recommendation are for The Karate Kid. I think The Karate Kid, I think there's enough here to make it unique. There's enough intrigue where it's a kid learning karate from a karate master. Um, and then them developing that relationship, that father-son relationship, uh, along with having to deal with the troubles and the tribulations of moving to a new place and having to deal with those who are bullying this kid, right? There's enough intrigue there to make this film unique. However... It is a bit disjointed. Um, I, I said earlier that um, it's it's an interesting it's interesting that there's a line in here about balance, about keeping one's life in balance. Uh, but I don't think this movie does itself justice by keeping itself balanced. Uh, it just feels like there are so many things he left and right that aren't given enough attention. Namely, practically all the side characters are giving a very short shaft. And even the main characters themselves are kind of hollow. Mr. Miyagi is probably the most developed out of, out of the two that are here. And Daniel has some uniqueness to him, but they're leaving it open for audience interpretation. But I would say maybe too much. They're leaving it open for too much of an audience interpretation where there's just not enough meat to the story that I feel um, I can latch on to. So when it gets to the second half and there's not enough there and it's kind of meandering from, uh, you know, trying to learn karate, but also trying to deal with the bullies, it becomes kind of a slog to get through that second half. So, and then of course the ending, which is completely abrupt and almost, almost undoes everything the film went for, except for one line. Um, if this movie, I feel is, at least from my state in my, the time I'm living in now and myself at this current moment, I feel it's honestly unsatisfying. Um, I think it's got some good moments, but they're kind of far and few between. So at the end of the day, I'm going to give it a five out of 10 and it's going to be a mild not recommend for me. I, again, I see the uniqueness in it, but I don't feel it's one that I would need to return to or one that I feel like I need to recommend. Cause I, like we just talked about, it might be that it just hasn't stood the test of time very well. The Karate Kid is considered classic 80s family fare, but does it still hold up today? There are really strong elements in this film of the transition from childhood to adulthood. We see Daniel go from throwing away his bike while crying to getting his first car. 
Daniel's nervous to talk to girls and eventually gets a caring girlfriend. One of my favorite parts of the film is this newly budding, innocent relationship between Daniel and Allie. It was refreshing to see a young romance remain innocent, fumbling, and sweet. Ultimately, Daniel learns the importance of perseverance through his relationship with Mr. Miyagi. The relationship between those two is the highlight of the film. This father and son dynamic teaches Daniel a great many lessons. Pat Morita deserved his Oscar nomination. Now, keep in mind, this is a simplistic family film from the 80s. This isn't a deep movie, but it does teach important lessons for a variety of ages while remaining entertaining, at least for the beginning and end. Despite the first act moving at lightning speed and the tournament consisting of basically the last 15 minutes of the film, the middle is an utter slog to get through. This film would be incredible if the editor would have found ways to trim this down. The Karate Kid should be an hour and a half instead of over two hours. That bloated second act really diminishes this film for me. I struggle to maintain interest. There are solid character moments peppered in the second act, such as the pain of Miyagi's wife and child dying in an American-Japanese internment camp while he was fighting the war, but unfortunately, moments like those aren't adequately explored. The juggling act of the different relationships may be true to life, but within the middle of the film, it's just too messy and too boring. That being said, I think there's enough fun and lessons to be had in this first installment that make this movie passable, but for families or 80s fans. Otherwise, it could have been great if the pacing could have been cleaned up. The Karate Kid receives 5 stars out of 10 with a mild not recommend. Oh, so we have the same score. We do, and I want I I hate to start the series off not recommending the first installment, especially the but, one that I hear the most about. Um, yeah, I did log all of the ratings for all of the films, and they drastically go down from here. So mm. that's not necessarily a good sign. But I was kind of surprised because yeah, seven point two on IMDb, eighty eight percent certified fresh. You know, I have to be honest with my feelings though because. I drifted between a five and a six, which for me is the difference between a mild not recommend and a mild recommend for the better part of a week leading up to this recording. And there was at one point where I was going to give this film a mild pass, but ultimately I really wanted to return to it. And I thought, you know what, if I can't return to this movie, then I'm just, I can't recommend anybody else do it as well. Yeah, so. it sounds like we have similar reasons for not giving it a pass because you, I know, had a re uh, one of your main issues was the pacing. The pacing, especially in that second act, was just kind of uh, to get through. It really where, janks up the movie. Yeah, where I felt like, um, while I didn't have as much in, of an issue with the pacing, my main issues were that this film and its characters just feel so hollow. So when it does get to that second act, because of how slow it already is, I didn't find anything to latch on to. Yeah. That's a good point. So, Alan, despite it being a not recommend for you, is it going to be a pickup or pass? I uh, it's gonna it's gonna be a pass for me. Mm. I am going to pick up the five film set just so I can have them all in my collection, so I can watch them with my kids someday, or if anybody comes over wants to watch the Karate Kid. Currently, it's 15 bucks on Amazon for all five films. I'm I'm going to guess I'm going to get this at the Dollar Tree someday. <laughs> I'm going to hold <laughs> out for it, especially because it's um, also a like a Canadian release, mm -hmm. a French Canadian release. So I see those at the Dollar Tree all the time. So 
Okay, Alan, what if it was at the Dollar Tree? Would you get the five film set for a dollar? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, but I don't know. So after seeing The Karate Kid, Alan, what would you recommend people do see instead of this film? Um, I'm going to say uh, definitely, for some reason, I was reminded of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon when I was watching this. Uh, very different movie from this. Um, but that one, and then also uh, E.T. <laughs> Seems like a, also another 80s movie about a coming, about coming of age. So those are my two. So my recommendation is another 80s film about karate, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, I thought you were going to say Karate Kid Part 2. <laughs> honestly, honestly did. No, that's like defining a word by using another word. Yeah, I'm about to say that's cheating. You can't do that. No, I wasn't going to do that. I'm going to go with TMNT. The first film, at the very least, is kind of weird and crazy, but I think it's a lot of fun, and it is an 80s film about karate that I haven't returned to it in a while, but nevertheless, I owned that one on DVD and I've watched it a lot more. I haven't seen, I've only seen one of, maybe I've seen parts of one, but I haven't seen it all the way through. Maybe we'll review them all someday. We'll, maybe. We'll see. But nevertheless, this wasn't the end for the Karate Kid series. Of course not. Not with an Oscar nomination in a major category and Ralph Macchio still being a heartthrob and this film grossing uh, about 11 times its budget. Just crazy numbers for this film. So it really wasn't too long. Two years later, John G. Alvinson comes back to direct The Karate Kid Part 2, which almost to the day was released two years later, Friday, June 20th, 1986. Mm. Gratefully, they shaved about 14 minutes off the runtime. Yeah, it's so like we'll an hour 54, I think. Uh, yeah, so we'll talk about that next week. But Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with The Karate Kid Part 2. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. 
Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.